I've been at Glen Abbey on staff for about 20 years. I got a little bit of background. Uh, I'm married to Vivian for uh, 36 coming years now. Three grown children who are married. Uh, three grandchildren, which is a, a really special time and season of life to enjoy. And uh, prior to all of that, I spent 18 years in the IT industry. Um, uh, that's where I went after university. So there's a little bit of a background from me. But there is so much that is magnificent, inspiring, and warm and joyous about life. I had a beautiful walk over at Beaver today, and it was just magnificent, um, walking through uh, the forest and down by the lagon. Absolutely beautiful. But all of us know that there is also something that is very seriously wrong in life. The world is not as it should be or could be. There's something that is inherently wrong. And we witness it every day without ceasing. Sometimes we're very aware of it and at other times less so. But evil exists and it takes many forms and exhibits itself in many ways. And some of those ways we have probably, if we're honest with ourselves, become immune to. Selfishness, lies, deception, covetousness, the jealousies that spoil everyday life and the relationships that we have. And yet in life we develop this sense of a thirst for success, for recognition, for power, for influence that drives us often to ignore God and what he has to say and to seek after our own desires. On a recent Sunday morning at Glen Abbey, I was praying and praying for the context of our world. And no matter where I looked, destruction was around. The humanitarian crisis in Yemen. 40,000 have lost their lives last year in Afghanistan. The recent and ongoing trouble in Syria and Turkey. The tension and the conflict. The ability of mankind to poison children in their homes. The many that have died recently in Iraq, Hong Kong civil unrest, the deaths recently in Paris. A hundred people have died in the past year in the streets of London. Northern Ireland continues to have the highest suicide rate in the United Kingdom with an average of five people dying each week. Drug and alcohol abuse is rampant. I happen to have a, the joy of uh, being a street pastor and I do round the Ballyclare and the Newton Abbey area and I see the destruction of addiction to alcohol and drugs with underage young people on a regular basis. Family breakdown and dysfunction increases mental health issues and their associated impact on the individuals and the family around us. We hear more and more about. And if I'm honest, I'm only scratching the surface. The whole world is groaning under the weight of evil. And you and I also groan. And what happened in Genesis 3 impacts life at every level. Everything is tainted. And so our understanding of what it means to live in this world today requires us to factor in what Genesis 3 teaches us about the beginning of sin. So we're going to jump straight in. We're going to read the chapter uh, together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was also a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. You on your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim Oops, I've just, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This chapter is often referred to as the fall, as it depicts the spectacular fall of human life as God had created it to be. At the heart, it involves first the questioning of God's word and then the denial of God's word. That is the heart of this chapter. And these are timeless tactics of the evil one. This is serious and significant, according to Jesus, because it impacts the very definition of life, because we don't just live by bread alone, 
but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Not just what is given physically, but what we are designed to live by the words that God has given to us. That is what sustains and nourishes our life. Listening to him, trusting in him, trusting what he says, following him where he leads. And it's so important for us to grasp this truth because trusting in God's word is at the very heart of what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. And therefore it makes sense that this is the target for Satan, to shatter the trust that we have in God. And if that happens, we then cease to enjoy and benefit from centrality of identity and of our given humanity through an intimate and personal relationship that we can have with him and he wants with us. So how do we truly live as God intends us if we no longer trust his word? If we no longer believe his promises? If we no longer accept who he says he is? A few weeks ago, I remember being out uh, in the Ballyclare with the street passers and I witnessed an assault taking place. If you want to see the impact of the fall, then take a walk around our city and our streets at night and observe how young people seek pleasure in the things of this world. And they're being sucked into lives of dysfunction, addiction and hopelessness. In the lead up to this assault, I seen something that I'd never seen before. A young guy ran and jumped with both feet into a car window, which shattered, completely shattered into thousands of little pieces. It's called tempered glass. It's designed to shatter into tiny balls of harmless glass rather than shatter into shards that can cut and injure. What once was solid and clear and providing protection from the elements was destroyed, totally shattered, no longer able to be used as it was meant to be. And that is what Satan is up to here. He's focusing in on the word of God and he wants to shatter belief in God's word. And he focuses in particularly in the one prohibition that God gave Adam and Eve. He ignores all the wonderful things that God allowed him to enjoy in the beautiful garden, the variety of plants and fruits and and animals. It was indeed a paradise. But what does Satan do? He sets his sight on the one thing that God asked them not to do, the one thing that they couldn't have. And that's a tactic that he still employs today. And many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, will recognize and we will have experienced what it's like to be sucked into a mindset of questioning God's character, of questioning his goodness, of questioning his love for us. It's not the great and very things that we can do that dominate our minds. It's the one thing that we can't do is to brew ambition. I used to get annoyed with my parents growing up because they had a curfew. I had to be in by 11 o'clock. But some of my friends were allowed to stay out later. It didn't seem fair or just to me. It was frustrating. And like everyone else, I pushed the boundaries. I challenged the deadline. And to be fair to my mum and dad, they enforced the deadline and their discipline was brought to bear on me. You see, boundaries are important and necessary. But we can see what is going on here at a deep and profound level. 
God's word is being challenged. Their trust in God is being questioned. Why did God give this prohibition in the first place? This is not God being difficult and narrow-minded and a killjoy trying to ruin Adam and Eve's enjoyment of the paradise that he had put them in. It was exactly the opposite. Providing a single prohibition was essential for relationship and trust to be established. It was essential for human dignity and freedom because they had to have a real choice. And what that choice was that they had to have had to be one of the freedom to make a decision. The decision that they wanted to make. And when God made human beings, he didn't pre-program us. He didn't pre-program us to do whatever he commanded us to do. We are not robots. He created us with free will and the ability to choose and the freedom to say yes and no. Free to trust or not to trust. What would it mean at a human level if we were pre-programmed? Absolutely nothing. There is no moral value for the real moral choice to exist. There has to be a moral boundary. Something you freely choose to say no to because you trust what God says. And God gave them that moral boundary. He gave them that prohibition. And now they had a choice. Will we trust God and obey him? Are not. This freedom to choose is what makes trust possible, love possible, free will possible, humanity possible. If we were pre-programmed, there would be no choice to be made because we would just do as we were programmed. And in making that choice, there were inevitable consequences. God didn't give them permission to disobey him. He warned them of the consequences if they did. But he gave them the freedom to choose. And Satan knew this. And in all his cunning deception, he started to undermine their trust in God and work on the prohibited thing. Look at that beautiful tree. Just think what that would taste like. Look at its potential, if only you could. You see, Satan can't create pleasure. He can only distort it. And what he wants to convince us of is if we only leave the creator and his prohibitions. If we set those to one side, we can really enjoy life. Satan distorts who God is, portrays him as some sort of killjoy who's stopping us experience real fulfillment in life real pleasure sure look at all the things god says you can't do he's so restrictive and punitive the only thing that's holding you back is god and satan is poisoning our minds against god and that tactic worked here in a perfect world with adam and eve before the fall and it is even more effective today in a fallen world after the fall in which we live today Did God really say? The questioning of God's word, followed by the flat denial of God's word. Surely you will not die. But imagine for a moment what it was like for Adam and Eve. They had each other in the garden and they talked to each other and they enjoyed each other's company. And God joined them and he walked with them and talked to them. That was it. And yet all of a sudden they hear another voice. What must that have been like? 
it's beguiling and intriguing, that voice, a voice that disagrees with God. What do you do when you hear another voice, another opinion, another way of doing things? It was a shock to their system. Did you hear what was said today? That what God says isn't right. You can imagine the scene and the conversation and debate. And then Satan does something which is really clever. He backs up his denial of God's word with something that is in fact true. And isn't that how often we are so easily deceived? A little bit of truth mixed with some lies is a recipe for disaster. So he reminds them of the truth that God had said that if they eat of that tree, they would be like him knowing good and evil. God had said it. Satan uses the truth to back up his lie. He constantly attacks God and his character to undermine him and make us doubt his word. And so in the end, Adam and Eve went for it. They listened to the other voice and grasped the opportunity to choose for themselves and to disobey God. Ignoring his word and warning, going their own way and following an alternative view. And isn't that what so easily can happen to us as well? And what happened as a result? Well, their eyes were open to shame and guilt. I wonder, do we remember our first experience of shame and of guilt? As we grow older, we tend to get more hardened and it maybe doesn't have the impact that it once had. But what must it have been like for Adam and Eve? Totally naked, not just physically, but their whole being. Having disobeyed God, hearing his voice, what did they want to do? Hide. They wanted to hide from him. It's an interesting, it's just interesting to look at that. Hiding from God. The one that they would have walked at, walked with. And they hid from him because they felt shame and guilt, fearing God and the consequences of their actions. They had this newfound knowledge, but with this newfound knowledge of what was good and evil, they had a new feeling, feelings of guilt, feelings of shame. And immediately their relationship with God is broken. The closeness is replaced by distancing themselves as they hide from their creator. And the incredible thing in all of this is that God knows what's going on. He knows everything. He doesn't give up on them. And likewise today, he doesn't give up on us. He asks the most important of questions that you can ask. Where are you? Where are you? Can I ask that question of all of us tonight? Where are we In relationship with God? Are we hiding from God? Trying to cope with the shame of actions. And of a life of embarrassment. If only people knew what I was really like. I'd be too embarrassed. I can't can't talk about it. Putting on a mask. Because you don't want people to know the truth. Not sure that we can be honest. And trust each other. Hiding from one another hiding from God hearing God call but not wanting to come to him because trust is broken down we're not sure whether we can trust him and Satan has been working hard in the background to make us question God's word to make us deny the truth of God's word and all along God knows where they are and he asks them questions 
He asks them questions to get them to repent. And he clothes them to hide their shame. It's, it's humorous in many ways to consider their own attempts to hide their shame and nakedness with fig leaves. And God comes despite their actions. He loves them. He cares for them. He provides for them. He clothes them properly. He doesn't remove their sense of shame, but rather covers them properly. And that's a good thing for us, maintaining that sense of shame when we have done wrong against God. And today we need to be aware of our conscience. We need to act when it is pricked and to guard it from being seared and becoming ineffective. We need to be alert and guard our hearts. We need to hold on to the truth of God's word. And so as a result of their lack of trust in God's word and subsequent disobedience, they suffer the consequences for their sinful actions. Childbirth becomes painful. Work becomes toil. Access to the tree of life is banned. The aging process sets in. And all of these disciplines remind us that the world is not as it was meant to be. And our experience is not as it should be. And we're driven back towards God for a solution. And what is that solution? What is that solution? A sin has entered the world in Genesis 3. Well, let's jump and read from Romans 5. In Romans 5, we read these words in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We don't have time to get into the detail of this wonderful passage. So I want to just highlight a few points that relate to what we've been looking at in Genesis 3. Remember Satan's tactics, the questioning God's word and then the denial of God's word. Using the truth to back up a lie and the consequence, Adam chooses to follow another voice, another way and disobey God. And so sin and death enters the world by one man. And today we still live with the consequence of Adam and Eve's decision to no longer trust God's word, to no longer believe that they could have confidence in what he said, to listen to another voice. 
Sin didn't start with us. We were born damaged. We came into the world already damaged, with a nature that was already sinful and perverse. I see it already in my young grandchildren, uh, four-year-old and two 11-month-year-olds. They've got character. They've learned how to be defiant already and struggle. We didn't sit down and teach them. They were born sinful. And if we're going to understand why we are that way, we really need to grasp what we're listening to tonight from God's word in Genesis 3 and in Romans 5. We are sinners through the disobedience of one man. And our identity when we are born is in Adam, that one man. We are children of Adam. And Paul expresses this through the repetition of the word reign. Because of one man's disobedience, the whole of humanity has been brought under the rule and dominion of two things, sin and death. The reign of death is obvious and uncontested. We see it constantly. It is ever with us. The reign of sin is similarly obvious, but today is hotly contested. Many people struggle with the word sin. They don't like to be categorized as sinners. So despite the advances in modern medicine, we still die. die. And despite our laws and attempts at big society and trying to go for a better life, sin still occurs in every generation. There is no one that is not subject to the aging process and ultimate death. And there is no one who has not been born flawed at heart and does not have the inbuilt tendency to prefer inclination to obligation. In other words, we're all selfish and want our own way and don't want to be told what to do. This is our identity. And if we could desire change and freedom and victory from sin, we must find a salvation solution that can change that identity. So what is that solution? The solution is receiving a new identity. We can't solve the problem of sin by self-discipline, by trying harder, exercising that sense of positivity, replacing negative behavior with better behavior. We must lose our old identity and gain a new one. And this can only be done through Jesus Christ. We went wrong through no fault of our own, and we will be put right through no merit of our own. God is a realist. He doesn't ask us to do what we cannot do. So Paul contrasts the impact of Adam and his act of disobedience and the impact of Christ and his act of obedience. Christ has reversed the process that Adam started. One trespass brought the reign of death of mankind. One act of righteousness brings the possibility of life for all. Adam brought condemnation. Christ brought justification. Judgment flows from Adam Grace flows from Christ. Adam placed all into the category of sinners. Christ places all who trust, there's that word again, trust him into the category of righteous. And note the repetition of this idea much more. We see it in verses 15 and 17 and 20. God's salvation isn't just enough to meet the problem. It's greater, far greater than the problem. And when the law came in, Sin didn't decrease, it increased. The purpose of the law was to expose sin, to show how far we fell short of what we needed to be. 
not to get rid of it. But where sin increased, grace increased more. Where once there was nothing but the reign of sin and death, now there is grace reigning in righteousness and bringing eternal life. Christ faced the sin of the world and through his act of obedience, his death on the cross provided salvation for all who trust him, trust his word. Those who receive this salvation as a gift will reign in life. So how does this become true for us? Through being united with Christ and so receiving a new identity. I'm no longer simply a child of Adam, but through Christ I am a child of God. And that changes everything. But we all have a choice. Do we trust God's word? Are we willing to choose to believe him and follow him? To recognize that we cannot save ourselves because of the sin and the consequences of Adam's disobedience? Are we willing to repent, to seek to follow God with the help of the Holy Spirit and to live in the forgiveness that Christ offers us through his death on the cross? I trust that each of us tonight will choose to believe and receive the gift of salvation that enables us to know forgiveness, acceptance and purpose in our lives. And for those of us who have been there and who have accepted Christ, my prayer is that we will learn to trust his word completely. And that when we hear that voice that challenges God's word, when circumstance hits our life and we think, where's God? If God really loved me, why is he letting me go through this? When those doubts start to seep in, that we remind ourselves it's a tactic of the evil one from the beginning of Genesis 3, to question God's word, to question the truth of who he is, to question his love for us, to question his provision for us, that we question him who gave everything for us and so may we trust his word and may we follow him all the days of our lives staying close to what he says and not being deflected by what the evil one would say because the beginning of sin is undermining trusting God's word to the point of denying it and choosing to live lives for ourselves instead of living them fully for God. Thank you.